Welcome to episode 44 of the Civil War Breakfast Club. I am your co-host, Mary, and I am joined tonight by the most awesome Civil War nerd I know, because I'm a shitty co-host, and I don't know how to do the introduction very well, Darren Weeks. And the Oscar going to most creativity of a host in an intro is... Anyway, how are you, Mary? How are you? Long time, no talk. It's been like I almost know. 10 minutes. It it's has. It's been a long yeah. time. It has. Yeah, this is our first time ever. We've done a double header mm-hmm. as we did a early episode with our friend Chris Brown from Civil War Trails. We had an episode a little while ago, which is really, really cool talking about that. So that will drop whenever you get a chance to Thursday morning. It, well, Thursday it'll, morning. By the time y'all listen to this episode, that episode will have already dropped. And hopefully mm-hmm. you've listened to it. And hopefully you know about our fundraiser now that we were doing for Civil War Trails, where we have some really mm-hmm. awesome autograph books that we are going to be giving away for every $5 you donate. You get your name entered into a draw to win one of these books. So We will announce those books tomorrow. Well, tomorrow as the crow flies, because when this drops, it'll be past 10. So yeah. we'll be announcing this uh, as we record this on Tuesday on our Facebook, on our, what do you call it? Our, our round table. Our round, round table. table. I, I think we can probably announce the books on this episode because people will already know what they are because this episode's dropping Saturday. And- All right. Well, you know something? You knock yourself out because you, you did, you know something? No, I, I got to say, you did a great job pulling these authors together, Mary. I, <laughs> I give you a hard time. Obviously, it was a slow week at DQ, even for a June week. But you were able to contact some pretty good authors. Why don't you let the listeners know who didn't get a chance to go on a roundtable what books we're going to be raffling off for the benefit to the Civil War Trails. So we are going to be raffling off The Dim White Light by our friend Eric Scheinlein and Nameless and Faceless Women of the Civil War by Lisa Samia and Mead at Gettysburg by Dr. Kent Masterson-Brown, Three-Cornered War by Dr. Megan Cake Nelson, and The Real Horse Soldiers by... Dr. Timothy B. Smith. So we got some good books and maybe more surprises to come. So look forward to that. That'll be a lot of fun. So we definitely have a good time going. So that being said, Mary, what are you drinking tonight? I am drinking Ransack the Universe by, again, Collective Arts, because they are the Treehouse of Canada. And I'm drinking it out of my Ride with the Winter mug, which is become like the official mug of Civil War Breakfast Club podcast, thanks to LaRoe Design. But the reason mm-hmm. I chose Ransack the Universe, I always try and find a beer that has something to do with the episode that we're going to do. I think that what happened to Milroy at Winchester second Winchester specifically that we're going to be talking about tonight. He got a little bit ransacked by Ewell and Early and Allegheny Johnson and Rhodes. I want to talk about that in a little while. I am also drinking out of my ride with the winter mug from the road design. Cause that's a lecture point. And I am drinking moody IPA. I'm drinking moody because Mary's usually moody on Tuesdays and she puts the OO in moody. So therefore I'm drinking moody IPA. So that's why it has nothing to do with the podcast it has to do with your mood. So that being said, Let's get to work. This is why you should not allow me to do the introductions because that was way better than anything I could ever do, you fucker. Jesus. Anyway, if if you guys would like Darren to always do the introduction, send us an email at info at civilwarbreakfastclub.com and just tell us that. Nope, not it. Before we get started, I have to commend you for not swearing on the interview with Chris, which I've never heard you go an hour before without swearing. So that's yeah, good news. That was hard for me. I'm sure we already broke that streak. So anyway, yeah. 
Are we east or west, Winchester, right? You're the geography expert. So are we oh. east or west? I think we're east, right? Eastern so we're, we're talking about the second battle of Winchester. Not speaking first with the first Winchester, nor to be confused with the third Winchester. We are talking about the second Winchester. We are in the Gettysburg campaign. We are in the throes of Robert E. Lee's move north. So we're going to talk about this battle. It's the second largest battle in the entire Gettysburg campaign. And everybody knows what the first biggest battle was. If not, then listen to the wrong podcast. It's not as popular as it, it's funny how Second Winchester kind of gets the uh, the crappy end of the stick. It seems like Brandy Station, which took place on the mm-hmm. 9th of June of 1863, gets a lot more press. Well, I think because um, it's more mainly like a like a cavalry engagement to and Jeb Stewart's mm-hmm. involved, right? So that could be why. Whereas this one is it, it seems to be like a relatively small engagement. Like it's only Ewell's Corps that's involved, but still it is to me, it, it's the gateway. To, well, to Gettysburg. Did, it's definitely understudied. There's no question. Underappreciated. It has enormous impact mm-hmm. on what would lead to the Battle of Gettysburg. And not to take away from Brandy Station, but everybody likes the horses. But this one is really, really important because of what it does. So why is you know why is Winchester important? I mean, it's a strategic location on in Northern Virginia, and this is a town that changed hands allegedly 46 times mm-hmm. in the American Civil War. So it got passed around more than a comb on first grade picture day. But I could have made one... another more raunchy joke, but I won't. Okay, well, there you go. <laughs> Friday night Goddardish. But it's it's in the, in the north end of the Shenandoah Valley. The Shenandoah Valley is really kind of a launching pad for rebel attacks. It's surrounded by mountains. It's got a lot of passes in and out. But if you're going to go into Pennsylvania from Virginia, you're going through the Shenandoah Valley realistically. It runs parallel to Washington, D.C., and it's, like I said, surrounded by those mountains. And if you look at it from the sky, dare I say, it looks like a popsicle, Mary. Just saying. Okay. Jeez, I but, wonder if you'll incorporate that into a meme. I don't know. I don't know. But what Lee wanted, Robert E. Lee, he wanted to clear the Union out of that because he wanted a clear place to march that army. So he wants to stage that attack in the north, which began on June 3rd. Winchester is going to do by capturing it. It's going to give him a supply base. It's going to, and more importantly, clear the feds out of there. So it's going to give him a place where he can run stuff back and forth from Pennsylvania. It's also going to give him a place where he doesn't have to worry about being nipped at his heels the entire time Mm -hmm. so he can bring his full army into Pennsylvania. If you've been to Winchester, it's a great place. I've been there a couple of times. It's only 60 miles from the Pennsylvania border, so it's pretty, pretty close as the burb flies, actually. Not so much by the road. It's actually, like I said earlier, about three major battles, 62, 63, and 64. It was a place that a lot of stuff happened. So we didn't really talk about Brainy Station in real detail. We talked about it here and there, but we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about that. But at Brandy Station in June 11th, a couple of days after the battle, uh, that horse battle, Lee is going to meet with his new corps commander, a guy named Richard Stoddard Ewell. How about that? Mm-hmm. New, new corps commander Ewell. Yep. So he wants to meet with him to t- with his second corps and to take them into the valley to capture Winchester, as well as a town called Martinsburg, because of what we said earlier. He wants that launching pad, and he wants a place to bring his supplies. Mm-hmm. Now, Lee was all excited after Chancellorsville. I mean, it's spring of 1863 was, was, was a big year, a big spring for him. Of course, the only downside was he lost Stonewall Jackson, which is why you is a corps yeah. commander. By the time we get to this part of the war, the Army of Northern Virginia has now has three corps instead of two. Where AP Hill and Ewell are now in charge of corps. And so they're new. Ewell has never controlled a corps before. So this is kind of a new deal for him. And as we kind of go through this, Mary, he's going to do pretty good. He is. Mm-hmm. No, you, Ewell probably has a shining moment here. 
And I think the other thing to mention, too, is like, so Lee on this campaign is not looking to threaten D.C. or Baltimore or anything. And that's kind of an idea that gets tossed around a little bit. And yes, if he takes Winchester, yeah, D.C. has the potential to be threatened. But that's not what Lee is looking to do here. Lee is actually looking to go into Pennsylvania and just have a gigantic shopping trip and maybe visit the old DQ or a few of them along along the way. But the, the one thing that to mention about this is so he's told his troops to forage again a lot like the orders that William Tecumseh Sherman will issue on his march to the sea in 1864. But the other part of these orders that Lee issues are to capture any African Americans, and they will send them back down south into slavery. And that's a, a, a darker part of this campaign that it doesn't usually get talked about. But the one thing that I've encountered in my years in studying the Civil War is people going all over Sherman for his liberal foraging of Georgia and burnings and all that. But then you come back at people with yeah, but Lee in Pennsylvania and taking the slaves and putting them back into slavery. That's an important part to mention on this campaign that he's doing. So basically, he's doing a big shopping trip. He, there are slaves that are captured and freed African Americans that have never been in slavery sent down south for this. He's not looking to threaten D.C. or or Baltimore at this point. Um, but if he can, that's kind of a bonus if they think he's going to. No, it's a, it's a bonus. I mean, I mean, Virginia at this point has been dealing with war for a couple yeah. of years now. The landscape is barren. There's no food for mm-hmm. the army. There's no food for the citizens. The farmers can't grow anything because it's, it's just there's, there's just too much carnage. So he wants to take the fight out of there. He wants to get into, into Pennsylvania. Now, all your points are absolutely completely valid as far as the shopping trip. The other thing he wants to do is he wants to wreak havoc in Pennsylvania. Now, yep. Pennsylvania at that time was heavily Democratic. And there were portions of that population that were very anti-Lincoln. The fall of 1862, the Dems won a bunch of seats in Congress and a lot in Pennsylvania. So Lee's thinking, well, I can go up to Pennsylvania. I can stay there as long as I possibly can, fill up the shopping carts. Okay. He's not going to be eight times a less line in this one. There's no question. He's loading them. You want to be there. You don't want to be there at the register when Lee comes up because it'll take you forever. He probably would have gone in the eight items or less line though. He would have been that level of dick. I think he would have wrote. He would have written a check too. (laughs) But um, we, we all take a check. (laughs) <laughs> and so he's going to go, he's going to go to Pennsylvania, but he also, cause he wants to hurt that morale. If he yeah. gets to Pennsylvania and he can stick it out there for a while, he knows the army of the, of the Potomac is going to chase him, but just him being there is going to be a morale killer. And that's what he's kind of thinking because we talked before he knew he could not win this war on might. He had to win it on will. So that was his thing. But the biggest reason was he had no food left and he had to get out. So June 11th, Ewell's going to plan his route with his other division commanders who, Gettysburg people recognize the names, Robert Rhodes, Jubal Early, and Edward Allegheny Johnson, as well as uh, sec- their second corps engineer, a guy named Jedediah Hotchkiss. And they're going to get together and they're going to plan this route. Now, here's the benefit. They were there a year before. Mm-hmm. So they're going to be invading but they're, they have home court advantage. They know the lay of the land. So they decide what they're going to do is they're going to take these three divisions and they're going to head towards a place called Fort Royal, Virginia. Milroy, we're going to talk about Robert Milroy here in a few minutes. I don't want to jump too, too far ahead. Robert Milroy is sitting in Winchester and he's probably thinking they're going to be attacked. But he doesn't know from where. He does not think that they are going to come through the, the south gap called Chester Gap. He thinks they're going to come from a place called Snicker Gap, or Ashby Gap, or Manassas Gap. He doesn't think it's going to be through Chester because it's just too far away. But guess where he goes? 
He goes to friggin' Chester. So he's going to march through there. So June 12th, Ewell's army is approaching Front Royal. Mm -hmm. He's got about 20,000 guys, 19, 20,000 guys, pretty good-sized army. He's also joined by his general uh, cavalry guy, Alfred Leroy Jenkins. (laughs) And so he has cavalry, and he's got three divisions, got 20,000 guys. Now, when we talk about the Union numbers here in a second, you can kind of see where this battle is going to go. But he's going to split his army in two groups. He's going to have Rosen early. They're going to march um, on Ewell's right wing. And Johnson is going to take that artillery on the left. Now, Ewell knows the Union Army is in pieces because they know where they are. Now, this is where you kind of get lucky with this. So he's going to have Rhodes and Jenkins Cavalry move to a place called Berryville, Virginia. Why? Well, it's because a guy named Andrew McReynolds, who's a brigade commander with Milroy, Mm -hmm. that's where he's staying because he's guarding Snickers Gap. He thinks that's where he's going to come through, and he knows it. So he goes, well, if I go hit him, I can block one of their exits. So Ewell's thinking ahead with this one. So he's going to strike Winchester with Early and Johnson with Jenkins as well. So what Ewell has here, Mary, he's got a pretty solid plan. He he's got a plan to attack. He's got a plan to stifle and stop the retreat right off the bat. Again, this is his first time as a corps commander. Yeah. And so he Milroy is going to start receiving reports that Confederates are coming into the Shenandoah. And he's very skeptical as to how bad the danger is. But, you know, another reason for that is he thinks he's in a very well-fortified place and that he can hold out for weeks, if not months, Mm -hmm. against any kind of attack. That's because the earthworks around Winchester, and they'd actually been started to be constructed by the Confederates early in the war, but there's all these different fortifications, there's different roads leading between them, and Milroy feels that if he can even pull back you know, to these, the main forts, like Star Fort, Fort Milroy, which we're going to talk about, that he can withstand anything that comes against him. The other thing that he has too, is he has cavalry stationed not too far from Winchester. Problem is, is he doesn't have them far enough away to be able to tell of any threat that is coming towards him. So they're, they're too close to Winchester to even be of any use. And the one thing about Winchester is, and I read this in a few places, it has enough rolling hills not undulations, rolling hills, that it's very difficult to tell if you're being approached by the enemy. And that's a problem that we're going to see with Milroy here. Well, first of all, you should throw those books away because they're wrong. Mm -hmm. But speaking of Milroy, so Milroy on the Union side, it's kind of a different thing. He's only commanding the second division of the Eighth Corps. We're not talking about a big army. Mm -hmm. We're we're talking about 7,000 people. He's part of a group called the Middle Department of the Eighth Corps, Second Division, he's under command of a guy named Robert Shank. Milroy, a couple. We'll talk real, real quick about him. First of all, undisputed best hair in the American Civil War. No, 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 we'll no, just no, leave no. it at that. We're gonna no, leave it no, right no, there. No, okay? no, no, no. Moving Olive Road is Howard. So infinity times in, infinity. He's born in Salem, Indiana. Okay, <laughs> June eleventh, eighteen sixteen. So it was a birthday boy when this thing's about getting ready to start. He's had a birthday. Mm. He had to go to West Point. He went to a place called Norwich University, That's which is interesting... here in New England. That's an interesting thing about this battle is there's a lot of them that don't go to West Point. Yeah. Well, we'll talk about about that a little bit here in a second, too, is what, what Winchester was kind of thought of at the time. Norwich University is in Northfield, Vermont. Um, he graduated in 1843. It's a military school. I was actually have a friend who went there. Many of the cadets, so people have seen the, the, the movie uh, Field of Lost Shoes, those VMI guys. Awesome you movie. Actually, you actually had – it was. You actually had some cadets from Norwich – who took, um, took part in the, the raid at St. Albans in 1864 in Vermont. So it was very similar. They didn't get a movie, just saying. 
after the movie, after he finishes with that, Milroy's going to go to law school. And we're going to see how his lawyer mind plays into this later on. He goes to Indiana University, Indiana University, it's easy for me to say, in 1850. And there he's going to get into the military again. He's going to raise a company in the, in the uh, 19th Indiana. He's going to be made captain after the firing of Fort Sumter. He's going to get his start in 1861, ironically, after serving with George McClellan in West Virginia. He'll fight at Second Manassas with the John Pope, and he's actually going to fight Stonewall Jackson to a standstill and actually kind of pants Isaac Trimble a little bit mm-hmm. at this battle, too. That's kind of probably his high point. He's an interesting dude, but at Winchester, it's it's kind of a different story. So, so we mentioned before, Milroy's looking at the map, and he's thinking they're going to attack at Snickers Gap. He has to, right? That's what he's thinking. He is going to have three brigades, uh, and he's going to have Washington Elliott, who is going to be controlling guys from Ohio and Pennsylvania, as well as William Eli and Andrew McReynolds, who I mentioned before. The reason why Berryville is important for this battle with McReynolds is he's going to take one-third of his entire division and put them there to defend the Snickers Gap. Because you've got a great view. It's a great vista of the whole area. So he's convinced Milroy is that's where they're going to be coming through, and it's going to obviously lead to a a gigantic problem. That happens. He doesn't think there's a threat, but he thinks he's going to reinforce it enough. And as we said, like June 12th, U.S. troops are going to enter the Shenandoah Valley at Fort Royal. Also at this time, Andrew Curtin, governor of Pennsylvania, informs the Pennsylvanians that a large rebel force was in position to make raids upon the states. He's urging citizens to join the militia, but like Milroy, they're not taking this threat seriously. Like they don't think that anything can happen. On June 12th, there is a skirmish at Middleton. So then Milroy sends some troops to the high ground at Pritchard's Hill, which is two miles south of the city. Milroy will end up having his forces concentrated on the ridges west of the town in the three highest and most improved forts that had were connected by trenches. So you have Fort Milroy, Star Fort, and West Fort that are the three main forts that are going to be occupied, but that is not going to work out in his favor at all. Fort Milroy was originally built by the Confederate troops. It's also called Main Fort. It's got 14 guns, including heavy artillery, you know, a little bit of foreshadowing, Spoiler alert, after the battle, it's going to be called Fort Jackson. It's the strongest of all the forts, could hold 2,200 men, and it's got four 20-pound Parrot rifles and two 24-pound howitzers. Star Fort can hold 300 to 400 men, so it's a little bit smaller than Fort Milroy, and then you have West Fort. But like I said, there's going to be an area that is not going to be well-occupied. No, And the problem with these forts, too, there are actually 10 total forts, There's ba- and they call them batteries 1 through 10. 2, yeah. 3, and 5 are the big ones. The three you mentioned, Star, West, and Milroy. The problem with the three big forts is they were built in 18. 1862 by Stonewall Jackson. In which direction were they facing? They were facing north because that's where they assumed that a battle would take place. So they're already not ready to deal with an attack from the south. If attacks gonna come from the south, they're gonna go right through this, they're gonna have the town before they even get to the forts. That's a that's a problem. So Ewell does go through that Chester Gap, the south, and he does enter the valley completely unopposed. Mm-hmm. So on his left flank, he's going to have some, uh, he's going to basically have early, he's going to have some um, artillery from the Baltimore line artillery and Brown's artillery, and they're going to approach Winchester from the southwest. The right flank's going to have Allegheny Johnson and that 16th Virginia Cavalry, and they're going to ask basically as a masking force. They're going to be, for the most part, just going to be demonstrating that Fort Milroy you mentioned, the main fort, it's got a good view of Winchester as well. 
But here's the thing. We mentioned before about why these guys weren't really West Point guys. Here's probably a good reason why. Again, I could be wrong, but that's just what I surmised. Like Fort Moultrie, this kind of was a resort fort. Mm-hmm. fort. Fort Milroy is where you had officers' families, wives, children, people like that. Lincoln, we'll find out here in a few minutes, did not consider Winchester to be strategically important. They were just there, right? Yep. So you also had a lot of injured soldiers from the previous battle of 1862 in the town, staying in the houses that were vacated by the retreating Confederates in 1862. So you had a lot of people. It was almost like, I don't want to say like a rest home, but it was almost like a a place where people could just kind of recoup. I don't think they took it very seriously as a place to go. And I think that's a big reason why. I mean, I've never, have not read that. I'm just kind of reading through the lines. That's probably why. Taking it seriously because he thought that they were going to be outnumbered. The whole point was, is you mentioned before about curtain, right? Yeah. As soon as the, the deal was, as soon as that city looked threatened, Halleck through Washington and then through Shank would tell Milroy, get the hell out of Dodge and get to Harpers Ferry. The second you feel threatened, get out. And we're going to find out in a few minutes that Milroy doesn't do it. He ignores that mm-hmm. order. So I think they didn't. They didn't want to fight there. It was not a place they wanted to have a fight. They didn't think it was that it was the the, the second division of the Eighth Corps was more important to them than the town, and so that was kind of part of the issue. June 12, eighteen sixty three. This is kind of where the whole thing kind of gets rolling. So the eighty seventh Pennsylvania, ironically, a, a regiment that was filled with guys from Gettysburg and Adams County as well as the 13th Pennsylvania Cavalry. Milroy's going to send them out. He's going to send them south of the town and around Winchester. And just kind of, you know, he's hearing these stories from Curtin of these rebels. So he's like, you know what? Go out there and see, see what the hell he's talking about. See if you find anything. And it's funny how history repeats itself. And this is this is an interesting story. So Milroy, I mentioned before, is told by his boss, Robert Shank, to get the hell out if he feels threatened. That order came right from the top, came from Lincoln to Halleck from the Rosewoods Clown, to shank right <laughs> to Milroy. So right down the line. So he knew if there was trouble to get out. They saw, like I said, they saw little strategic value in the town. There's no point in holding it, yep. so who cares? So that 87 PA and 13 PA cavalry, what do they see? They stumble into the early elements of Yule's Corps, the cavalry, late afternoon on the 12th of June. It's funny how it works. The feds are going to kind of retreat, and they're going to kind of sucker them a little bit. They're going to kind of run over a hill, like the movie The Patriot. And then when the Rebs chase them, there's a whole bunch of guys waiting there with yep. the guns. Yep. That's what happens here. So the 87th Pennsylvania kind of ambushes them and pushes them off. Now, one thing that's important to mention about this battle, every one of these regiments in the second division of Milroy are all green. They've never seen battle. These are the guys who guarded railroads, they guarded trains, guarded bridges. They never saw battle. So for the 87 to be this aggressive, and they're going to see later on again they were, it's actually impressive because they they really did. A guy named Colonel John Shaw from the 87th Pennsylvania. And this is, this is where history repeats itself, Mary. He goes back to Milroy, and this is what he says. We saw rebel cavalry in the town. You know what Milroy says? You're full of it. It's local militia. <laughs> They're way back in Brandy Station. You don't know what you're talking about. You're green. He goes, I'm telling you, that's rebel cavalry. He wow. goes, you don't know it. And so it's funny how one month later, the same thing happened with Heath and Pettigrew. I always yeah. got a kick out of that because it's almost the same exact Well, it's story. the same thing as what happens in 1862 with, with Sherman and Appler yeah. at Shiloh. Like, there's no Confederate troops as far as Corinth. Take your damned regiment back to Ohio. Would have been hilarious yeah. if it was an Ohio guy saying that to him. That's pretty true. Anyway, but <laughs> I, it just, it just, it's just funny what he's saying. You, you're new. 
It's not. It's local militia. It's just, it's not. How many They're times still did that happen in the Civil War? Well, there was a month apart. It was both involving cavalry. Yeah. I, I got a kick out of that. So the next day, the 13th of um, of June, Miller is going to say, shit, you know, this show might have been right. He finds out the hard way. This is officially when really, when Shank really gets a hold of Millery and says, those rumors from Curtin, mm-hmm. they're true. You need to get the F out. You need to go now because you, you have a gigantic army, about 20,000 guys who is going to be right up the Yazoo here in a second if you don't get the hell out of there. He's going to ignore it for whatever reason. Whether he thought he could defend it, whether he felt those forts were sufficient, he chose to ignore the order. And it's going to have gigantic ramifications on him personally as well as entire division. Yep, it is. He's like he ignores that order completely. June 13th, you know, by 4.30 a.m., Ewell's starting to put his plan in motion, which is basically that Allegheny Johnson and Early are going to march directly on the town and Rhodes is going to go with, with most of Jenkins' cavalry and go to Berryville. As we talked about earlier, Milroy's men are in positions on the high ground northwest of the town. It was actually Jubal Early who steps in with the plan for Ewell that there's a hill west of the town that's not fortified. And he tells Ewell, I think that's where we need to go. Yeah. Is there. And so by late afternoon on the 13th of June, they guess where they end up, Mary? They end up in Kernstown again. Guess what? They we do. got trouble in Kernstown again. Yeah. Trouble in Kernstown. Yep. So they, they end up they end up on the site of the Battle of 1862 when we talked before Mary, when Nathan Kimball had totally pants Stonewall Jackson. Yep. So they're back again. And ironically, they got back again the next year, too. So every year at Kernstown, poor, poor Pritchard family has yep. to deal with these people. But that's where it's going to be. So the, the official Battle of Second Winchester is going to begin again in Kernstown. Yep. So you've got Milroy's green troops, and they will find out that it's not easy being green in the Civil War either. They're going to have 110th Ohio, the 123rd Ohio, the 12th West Virginia, the 12th and 13th Pennsylvania Cavalry, as well as a battery, battery D from West Virginia. Now, these guys are, like I said, they're all green. They are positioned along those heights on Pritchard Pritchard House, Pritchard Heights, where is a pretty good place to be, to be totally honest, Mm -hmm. as well as along Sandy Ridge. That's where the 12th West Virginia is going to be. They're going to be going up against the iron of the Confederacy at this time. They're going against John Gordon's Georgians, and they're going against Harry Hayes' Louisiana Tigers. Oh, the Tigers. Now, these these are the last friggin' people you want to see, right? Yeah. If you want to compare, if you want to flip the coin of the Iron Brigade Confederacy, it's probably Hayes' Tigers. These guys are crazy. Like, so interesting history behind the Louisiana Tigers. The name was meant for one specific company, but eventually all Louisiana troops in the Army of Northern Virginia are going to become known as Louisiana Louisiana Tigers. But during this battle, it is the 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, and 9th Louisiana that are fighting. Name originally comes from the Tiger Rifles, which was a volunteer company raised in New Orleans as part of Major Chatham Roberday Wheat's 1st Special Battalion. But one of their claims to fame, and there's one listener that is not going to like hearing this, but Ryan, I apologize. It is someone from the 9th Louisiana that gets credit for killing Phil Carney at the Battle of Chantilly. Uh-huh. And that's one of their claims to fame. And they are actually the ones, as we're going to see at Second Winchester, like they are a big reason that that Second Winchester is taken by the Confederates. And honestly, like when I was researching this, you look at the history of the Louisiana Tigers, it completely glosses over what they do at Second Winchester. It goes straight to Gettysburg and what they do there. But I think what they do here is another important part of their story as well, even if they are kind of pants in the Union. Well, they're going to be the stars. So Gordon and George are going to push back that 12th West Virginia from Sandy Ridge. And Hayes' Louisiana Tigers are going to beat these Ohio guys easier than Alabama beats Ohio State in a football game. 
that's how that's how easy they're going to push them back off that hill. Now, Milroy's guys, they're going to get pushed back through the town. Now, they're going to redeem themselves here in a little bit. So that 110th and 123rd Ohio, again, green troops, they're going to rally and they're going to actually counterattack along that valley turnpike south of the town. So they're going to kind of regroup and they're going to say, let's attack. So Colonel William Wilson of 123rd Ohio is going to rally them and they're going to attack these Louisiana Tigers and they're actually going to slow them down. I can only imagine the surprise of these Louisianas with their zoobs and everything jumping up and down. Yep. Realize they got to slow down. Now, the only thing that's going to slow them down, really, these Ohio guys, is the darkness. So the day is going to come to an end. It's going to turn into nighttime. And it's going to stall Early's attack. So as much as we have fun with these Ohio people, Mary, that counterattack from the 110th and 123rd along that or along that Valley Turnpike, yep. considering who they were versus who they were fighting. Actually, quite impressive. Simultaneously, while this is all going on, Allegheny Johnson, he's going to be hitting that federal picket along an Opaquan River crossing. And he's going to get basically pushed back by the guns on Fort Milroy. And he's going to kind of stall there. He's going to kind of set that yeah. up. That's, again, that's really a diversion. Now, we mentioned before, uh, McReynolds was sitting over there in Berryville. He had specific orders that if he heard the signal gun go off from Fort Milroy to get his ass back. So at this point, they fire the signal gun. Okay. It's kind of like they blew the conch shell, right? And so <laughs> so McReynolds is going to have to get back to Winchester, yep. which he does. And so for the first time in this battle, Milroy has all three of his brigades together. Now, again, he is commanding a division, not a corps. So he doesn't have three divisions together. He's got three brigades uh, under Elliot, Eli, and McReynolds. So he doesn't have a big, big army. But you're going to have McReynolds. They're going to get put in that star fort you mentioned. And the other two are going to be put in Fort Milroy and Fort in the, in the West Fort. So now they're in the big three forts, but they're northwest of the town. And they're giving away the town. And they're putting themselves in a very vulnerable position to attack really from three different angles, or really yeah. four different angles. Milroy at this point has got to see the writing on the wall that he might be screwed. Takes he, him a couple more days to figure he, that out. He doesn't realize that he is surrounded. That leads us into, I think we're going into June 14th now. Am I getting that right? June 14th, June 14th. day two of the battle. Yeah. Yep, um, day two of the battle. On this day, like we're going to head over to Washington, D.C. for a second. Lincoln messages Hooker asking <coughs> him if it's possible that Ewell and his 15,000 could be at Winchester. Now, Ewell doesn't have that many troops. He's got about 12,000 troops. And Hooker gives him a response that is based on information 24 hours old. So it's basically like, eh. No, I don't think so. I, I think I think we're good. And Lincoln wanted to know if Milroy's men could hold out for a few days. And if so, could Hooker help them? And Lincoln just says to him, if the head of Lee's army is at Martinsburg and the tail of it between Fredericksburg and Chancellorsville, the animal must be very slim somewhere. Could you not break him? In other words, could you not fucking move, please? And Lincoln doesn't know what's going on. And I think it's quite evident, too, that, that Hooker doesn't know what's going on. And communication is not good in the AOP at this at this point. Keep in mind, you know, General Meade's not in charge yet at all. This is still Hooker in charge. And that's how June 14th begins in Washington, D.C. Back in, in Winchester begins with, with John Gordon reopening his attack. And he's going to quickly take a place called Milltown Heights. It's kind of a big flower-making district in the town. It's 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 just south of the town, but it, but it's a it's an area. And he's going to end up, Milroy's going to end up countering by placing that 12th Virginia in 122nd Ohio, north of Milltown. And they're going to, what they're going to do is they're going to take the 12th, 12th West Virginia in the 122nd Ohio. In between, they're going to put that Battery D of West Virginia. And it's going to be like a flying V going south. That, that's, going to be the, that's going to be the direction. Mighty Ducks. Mighty Ducks, exactly. But that's how it's going to be. Soft hands, call it. Soft hands. Great movie. And, 
Gordon's going to end up in position again to attack that 12th West Virginia for the second consecutive day because he fought them earlier in Kernstown. And he is going to push them back. Again, these are green troops. And so the numbers do tell the story. They're going to push back, and Gordon's be able to secure a place called Bowers Hill. Now, Bowers Hill overlooks the town. It's a great artillery platform. So the first thing he's going to do is going to place two batteries on that hill. Now, this is going to threaten the forts almost immediately. Ewell and Early are going to be up on that hill, and they're going to scout those Union defenses. And he's going to look, and he's going to say, you know what? I'm going to flank these bastards. I've yeah. got them. He knows because he knows because of the terrain. Now it's only we the rolling about hills. The, right, well, with the trees, undulations, the rolling hills. Say it, rolling hills. Well, there was there was actually mountains. It was more. We've talked before about how some of the terrain in these battles has hurt the Confederacy and the Union swamps and darkness the rebs know this terrain they know like the back of their hand well, yeah that's the thing cases. they're going into it especially like because ewell was there before with jackson at first winchester he already knows this terrain so he's going into it with with not like you know but the other thing too like you know to put it back on milroy milroy should know what the fuck the terrain is too and he does i think he was you know proverbially whistling by the graveyard at this point Absolutely, i think he, he knew was. i think he knew he was screwed yep. and he would just hope for the best so Yule, he's going to flank them. So he's going to gather three of Yule's of Early's brigades near a place called Apple Pie Ridge, which just sounds wonderful. Just wonderful. Isaac Avery, uh, extra Billy Smith, and Hayes. So he's going to take them along with 20 guns. And what he's going to do, he's going to flank around the left-hand side of the Confederacy. And they're going to be masked beautifully by the terrain. While this is going on, they're going to have Allegheny Johnson go to the Union left, the Confederate right, with Gordon. It just make noise. They're going to demonstrate. They're going to fire. Yep. But because he's going to take the attention away from this flanking force that's going around the left side of that mountain. Yep. And Milroy's not going to see it coming. He's going to focus his attention on that. It's going to be a situation where Early goes around a place called Little North Mountain. So it's not a hill, nor is it an undulation, Mary. It's a, it's a little mountain. They're going to go around that, and Johnson and Gordon are going to be around that right-hand side. And all the focus is going to be on Johnson. And it's going to be on Gordon and the guns. And they're going to be sneaking right out of their nose. Exactly. It's a brilliant diversion in a way like i'm i'm thinking back to the it's now two episodes ago um about our second episode about vicksburg where grant does you know gr the gerson's raid which is totally meant as a diversion for pemberton this is a much smaller diversion on ewell's part but it i think that's one of the things that makes this so brilliant is this diversion that he's managed to, managing to create so he can set up to basically surround milroy and this is something that i i don't think like you will gets enough credit for you know like no. he, you hear all about you at gettysburg and all, all, all the criticisms but like yeah i get he's a confederate but him at winchester is he's brilliant here with what he's well, doing he, it's a it's a classic rope -a dope it's yeah. look here i'm gonna hit you here so by 5 p.m on the 14th hayes louisiana tigers these freaking guys again okay they begin, begin their attack on West Fort against 116th Ohio. And again, it's it's the battle-tested iron versus the newbies. And so that one gets pushed back pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. The Ohioans get tripped. They end up running to Fort Milroy. And the Tigers are going to take West Fort. Now, the armies are going to sit there at night for the, for the rest of that day and basically trade fire back and forth for the rest of the night. But what's interesting is the guns the Rebs are firing on Fort Milroy are the ones that they were Union guns they took from West Fort. Exactly. So they use their own weapons on them. So as day two ends... Going into the 15th, Milroy's sitting there. This is when he has his holy shit moment. Yeah, he has his like, right? we, we, need, to, we need to vacate the dance so floor. So the, the, the wolf is at the door. 
He's surrounded. He knows he's screwed. And so he has that. He's going to hold a council of war, which is always hilarious. We don't know if anybody was there bug-eyed staring into the night or not. But <laughs> he knows he's, he's outnumbered. You know, he's SOL and JWF. Shit out of luck and jolly well, you know what? Yep. He knows that's what's going to happen to him. So he decides he's finally, finally going to obey orders and retreat to Harpus Ferry, yep. where he was ordered to two days before. So he's going to do it. He looks and decides he's going to he's going to take a place on this road called the Old Charlestown Road. That's how he's going to do it. So just after midnight, on the 15th now, Milroy's going to spike his cannons. He's going to destroy the materials. People don't talk about a lot enough about Milroy with this, okay? He's going to leave all those women and children I've mentioned before. He's going to leave them yeah. in the fort. He's going to leave all those sick people in the town. Yeah. He's going to leave them. He's going to say, I can't take you. So who the hell says chivalry is dead, Mary? Who says, right? That's what he does. He's going to take what he can and say, you Good luck. See you later. These officers, wives, and children have to deal with these freaking oncoming Confederates. So that's what happens. Now, this is where Yule doesn't get enough credit. We talked before about how he prepared for the retreat. So he's playing chess while Milroy's playing checkers, that old phrase. That's literally what he does, right? Exactly. So he prepped for the retreat, and he was ready for Milroy. So while this is all going on, he's going to send Allegheny Johnson's division northeast of Winchester to block the roads out of town. Rhodes is already blocking the roads in Martinsburg at that Valley Pike, that Valley Turnpike, so he knows that way is blocked. So he has to go to an old Charlestown Road. So Milroy is thinking, okay, I'm probably going to get to Kool-Aid Man my way out of here because I don't think I can – I think I'm surrounded. So he knows he's going to probably have to do it. So if he's going to get to Harpers Ferry, he knows he's he's in for it. The other thing that's going on is he's in the dark and he doesn't know where the hell he's well, freaking it's going. It's one in the morning when he's leaving, <laughs> you know, which is fucking insane. And so, you know, they they do leave wagons behind because they can't. They've got they've got to vacate the dance floor as quickly as possible. But at three thirty in the morning, you have what has become known as the Battle of Stevenson's Depot, which is right, so, with Allegheny Johnson's men. So Johnson knows where, where to go. He's going to go. He's going to block that Winchester and Potomac Railroad. He's going to get to a railroad cut. They're going to be on both sides of it on a bridge. And they're just going to sit there and wait. They're going to set artillery on both sides. They're just yeah. going to sit there. and They're going to they're play Twister. And they're just going to wait for these guys to come, which is exactly what they do. And if they, Claiborne was there, he'd be playing chess probably. That was going probably. On. So they're going to sit and they're going to wait. Johnson's going to place George Maryland Stewart, not confused with Jeff Stewart, and along with Jesse Williams' brigade, that, that Nichols' brigade. And so they're going to be ready for Milroy to walk into this trap, mm-hmm. which, of course, to your point, at 3, 3 in the morning, he happily obliges and he does it. So the feds are going to stumble right into Williams and right into Stewart, and they are going to get absolutely astroglided. Yeah, they get completely pantsed, astroglided, as Darren says. <laughs> and they fight for two hours. Milroy nearly gets his entire command annihilated here. The Union, they they do manage to kind of, they fight back and they try to to break through the Confederates on both flanks, but they they fail both times. A few men manage to get away, but as we're going to talk about soon, the the casualties on the Union are just, this is why they're so high. This battle of Stevenson's Depot is, oh, oh, Mil- is why Milroy, Milroy knows he's probably screwed. Yeah. And we talk about beer guard at Shiloh, right? Mm-hmm. When he knows he's screwed. And what does he do? He just he goes to the front and becomes a hero. Milroy does the same thing. Yep. He jumps on a white horse, okay? And he's gonna ride along the front. He's gonna the line is gonna be the 18th Connecticut and the fifth Maryland. And he's gonna ride up and down the front while they're facing Williams' friigan Pelican Brigade, the Louisiana's the other crazy <laughs> boy, right? That's what they were called. The How Pelican could they- Brigade. 
I see a white horse at night? No, it was like five in the morning now. It's getting light out. Okay. Why did I just so, think of the song Nights in White Satin? Do you know that song? Maybe because it's moody blues. Who knows? We'll say. Right? <laughs> anyway, so he has to show personal leadership now, personal, because he knows he's screwed. But you know what, though? What does he do? At five o'clock in the morning, he gathers his officers together and says, all right, here's the deal. Let's point and say, what's that? And let's all go this way. Yeah. So that's what he does. He and his officers are going to quietly sneak away, a la Van Dorn and Pete Ridge. They're going to they're gonna exit stage left. And they're going to leave the fighting for the soldiers. And they're just going to leave them. McReynolds Brigade. They actually do retreat and actually get away. But the other two, under Elliot and, and William Eli, they're forced to surrender. Right as they're trying to fight, they get flanked by the Stonewall Brigade of Jimmy Dynamite Walker. Yep. That's going to hit them on their left side. And so they know they're screwed. They, they're going to have to quit. So the battle's going to pretty much end at that point on the 15th. The Rebs do take Winchester. But again, we'll talk about the post-game here. And this is where it gets really ugly for Milroy in the Union. 4,709 total Union Confederate. 4,443 of these are Union. Over 4,000 are missing or captured. And that's likely because of what's happening at the Battle of Stevenson's Depot. Milroy is going to turn up at Harper's Ferry. Oddly enough, the commander is the one that manages to get away. And he's placed under arrest. There is a court of inquiry held and he's exonerated, but he's never again going to hold field command at all. Milroy eventually gets transferred to the Western Theater where he's going to recruit for Thomas's Army of the Cumberland in the Nashville campaign. The reason that the citizens of Winchester did not like the Union being there was because of Milroy, because he was kind of an asshole and he didn't treat the civilians very well. Um, but when he's in the Western Theater, he's known for doing that too, along with banishments of anybody who had Confederate sympathies, as well as executions. Mm -hmm. uh, so he's not really a great guy. He's going to fight briefly in the Third Battle of Murfreesboro, and he finally resigns his commission July 26, 1865. And then he's going to work for a couple different places. He'll die in May of 1890, and he's buried in Masonic Memorial Park in Turnwater, Washington because Milroy is apparently a Mason. Well, the thing about it, I mean, he, we'll talk again more about this stuff, the, the post with this, because yeah. it, it's interesting because they, you, know, you mentioned before those losses, those the people who, who got caught. So forget, they also lost 300 wagons, yeah. 300 horses, 200 guns, a ton of supplies. That 54% capture rate is the highest by far by percentage of the entire Civil War. It that is. percentage rate. We mentioned before about the um, the, the boat landing in, uh, in Bruinsburg last yep. week or D-Day. This percentage of, casualty, of, of casualties versus prisoner of war, that record will stand until World War II in the Philippines. That's how long this lasts for. Mm -hmm. And it's insane. An artillerist named Robert Stiles, a Confederate guy, he says, The Battle of Winchester, Sucker Winchester, was one of the most perfect pieces of work the Army of Northern Virginia ever did. And he's right. You know, mm -hmm. it's it's by far Yule's absolute best moment. We see a lot of people who rip on Yule for Gettysburg, right? Yep. They talk about, well, if Jackson were there, Yule, they, they, people in real time would have no reason to doubt Yule after coming off this battle because no. everything, he, there is nothing he did that Jackson couldn't have done better. He almost a perfect battle. Miller, you know, you mentioned have, he's going to jump on that train from Harper's Ferry and he's going to go to Baltimore to go meet with Shank because he's getting called the principal's office. And Shank wants to know why. Well, one, why didn't you retreat? We told you to. And why 
why'd you leave the field? And so he's like, we're going to have to arrest you. And he says, okay, well, that's nice. And he leaves and he bails for Pennsylvania before he can get thrown in jail. He wants to go be with Andrew Curtin, the governor. You know what he wants to do? He wants to get the band back together again. He wants to get his, his division back. Yeah. It just doesn't happen. They end up taking his division and dissolving it. Most of the guys who got caught, 3,500 alone by Allegheny Johnson. But the 4,000 yeah. got caught, they went to Libby and they got sent to Andersonville. So Milroy's actions directly affected this hell that these guys went to. Yep. And you mentioned before about some of the stuff he did about he, you know, after was getting sent west. Like most of these guys, to your point, he got sent to the land of the Misfit Toys in 1864. Yep. But he actually had some success there, though. Mm-hmm. December 7th, 1864, day that will live in infamy for some people. He actually beats Nathan Bedford Forrest pretty easily. Yep. He cleans him up at the Battle of the Cedars. So he's never going to do anything. But the funny part, I mentioned about, about Milroy, he was before he was a lawyer. He's got a little Dan Sickles in him here. Oh, he does. He, put, he puts a spin on it. You know what he says about Winchester? He says, my effort in Winchester saved the Union and helped win the Battle of Gettysburg. The fuck? Because those three days I stalled Lee gave Meade and, Jack and, and, and Hooker enough time to get up there. If I didn't do what I did, they would have gone right through Gettysburg. They've been waiting for the Union when, I, when they got out there. Therefore, I deserve credit. He said this on the day he died. That is he such bullshit that, because you so, look at how it happened. There's no way. But well, I'm <laughs> no, telling you, I'm going to call this, bullshit this, on this, that. This is, this is the lawyer in him. Until the day he died, he felt he was a hero of the Battle of Gettysburg because of what he did at Winchester, which was get his ass kicked. But he felt that he provided that necessary speed bump to give Hooker and Meade the time to get there right as Heath and those and Yule and those guys were arriving. So in his mind, he deserves all the credit, which I always thought was fun. That but is again, a, he went I to, don't know. He I have, to I have lawyers in my family and I would like to present that evidence to yeah. them. So that was, that'd be one of those, um, holy crap. So yeah, so, so look, looking real quick, we kind of lead into the Battle of Gettysburg. So after this Winchester happens, it completely freaks out Abraham Lincoln. Oh, it does. Right? Yeah. Yeah. To the point where he issues a call for 100,000 volunteers. Governor Andrew Curtin is going to call for 50,000 volunteers. Stanton is freaking out. But the other thing that happens in this aftermath, too, and it's around the time of the Battle of Gettysburg, is the riots in New York, too. Like, I think those happen, right? Around this time? The draft riots? Am I getting that right? It was July of 63. Yeah. But yeah, like Lincoln freaks out. And I think because it's Winchester, like they're like, oh my God, DC is going to be threatened. But that's what not what Lee is after. But yeah, it causes a lot of it's like they finally have this holy shit. This is happening. Like they didn't think it was going to happen. Well, what do we say at the beginning of this? Lee wanted to freak out the people of the North. He yep. wanted to get and the people it. against it. And he actually did. But what's he interesting did. too about this was he's going to call up 100,000 militia to defend Pennsylvania. Our old friend Darius Couch from the Second Corps, who mm-hmm. gave it the old quiz at Chancellorsville, he's in charge of de- basically the defense of Pennsylvania. And, and this story always kind of astounded me where, where they were calling in troops to defend Pennsylvania. You had hundreds and thousands of black troops showing up in Harrisburg to defend the state. And yeah. he would not let them, he would not let them fight. You would have to fight. And it, and it was, and it's always a black, it's always a black mark on that battle. Because when you talk about the future of the Gettysburg Address and all, you know, all men are created equal. All the stuff that Lincoln talked about, it was it's always kind of a sad irony that there were black troops willing to fight in that battle in the north and that they were not allowed to fight. It's just one of those, it's just one of those things. It is. But, it, um, it, it, it definitely is. And it, it's to see like Lincoln all of a sudden, he's like, we need 100,000 volunteers and all this other stuff. It's like, like, did you not think they were a threat? Like you, 
you know, you, you, you should have been on, you know, it's like, yeah, it is possible that that is going to happen. But to the other thing too, that Lee was looking to do, and you, you've mentioned this is like this kind of this peace movement in the north, he wants to try and get like Pennsylvania to especially start looking at this peace movement to happen, like get the copperheads involved and all that. As he's getting ready to go, this is how the table is set, and we can get ready to finish up here. But this, so, mm. what were Lee's goals as he sent Yule up? He wanted to threaten Pennsylvania. He wanted to get the political minds going about whether or not they wanted to fight. He wanted to set up that supply depot and set up a launching pad into Pennsylvania. At this moment, thanks to Richard Yule, he has everything he wants to prepare to go in. So you think of like a rocket taking off from Cape Canaveral. They're counting down. Yep. You know, we're a go, we're a go. Yule's Winchester is the last. We're, we're a go. So once that happens, it's on like Donkey Kong for Pennsylvania. Because now he has his supply place, like you mentioned. He has everything he needs. He's got the valley clear of Union soldiers, especially when Harper's Ferry gets vacated for Meade to go fight at Gettysburg. He has no one behind him. Mm -hmm. So he has it. He has it going in. Now, we'll talk more about how it all plays itself out. We'll talk about Gettysburg. We're going to focus on the retreat. After this is going on, you have to appreciate the fact that this is Richard Stardewell's best day. It Not is. even close. And it's his best first day. So when he tells Lee... He can't take that hill. Lee's going to believe him. And it's not because he's incompetent. It's not because he's Jackson. It's because he's got a track record now. And it's an impressive track record what he did in Winchester. Absolutely. And I think that's an important thing to, to take into looking at the Battle of Gettysburg because Ewell takes a lot of shit for not, you know, taking that hill if practicable. I think Winchester shows that he had what it took as a commander. And I think... You know, I guess you could say like, well, what if Jackson had been at Winchester? Well, I, I don't know if I want to go down that what if right now. But, you know, I think Ewell doesn't get talked enough about this. And he does take a lot of shit for the whole like, oh, Jackson would have took taken that hill, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah I think if you look at, at, at Ewell's actions at Winchester, you can see they are well thought out. They're well planned. He is brilliant here with what, what he does. He manages to to take Winchester, which is a very important place because, you know, the, the railways that are there. The other thing that happens too that we didn't mention is when Rhodes and Jenkins are doing what they're doing, they, they cut the telegraph line mm -hmm. and Milroy has no communication at all. Like he's done, like there's nothing there. So, so that was severed as well. But I think coming away from this, the MVP in this battle is Richard Ewell. Oh, without a doubt it is. I mean, without it. Yeah. I mean, he did, he did everything right. He really, really did. And to contrast, they, they kind of did everything. You know, people like Rhodes did everything right here, too. But mm -hmm. there does everything wrong at Gettysburg. So it's kind of funny. You're as good as, you know, you're, you're good on a Monday. You're good on a Tuesday. Exactly. But this, this, this was a situation where you could have drawn it up perfectly. You're bagging 4,000 guys, you're 300, 200 guns, 300 horses, all those supplies. Now you, you already you already have supplies as you're heading into, into Pennsylvania. So you got that you got that boost So as you go on your trip. So I think it, it, it's setting up well. Now, this is going to be the high mark of the Gettysburg campaign as far as battle goes. Mm -hmm. But it's going to be a situation where they end up more prepared going in than I think even Lee had probably thought of, it, it, even this wild strange yeah. thing. Well, I think it was, I think it shows... Ewell's brilliance as a commander too, that he's going to, you know, he's listening to what Early has to say about, hey, let's set up over here. And he's consulting with Jenkins as well and Rhodes to figure out, okay, what is the best way to do this? And that's very similar to how we're going to see Meade conduct himself at Battle of Gettysburg, you know, where he's like, okay, I'm going to send Hancock down here to determine stuff. 
it's clear that Ewell is listening to those that his subordinates for their opinions on this, just like Meade is trusting someone like Hancock to go do what he needs to do. So there are some similarities that you can compare here in the command style that is happening, I think. Mm-hmm. Oh, there's no there's no question. It's going to be interesting as this goes forward to see how it all plays itself out. Most people who, who study history know how, know how it plays itself yeah. out. But for this day, for June 15, 1863, this was a day that Richard Yule could hold his head high along with that second corps. Yeah. That's exactly what they did. So what is next? We're going to be talking Battle of Kennesaw. And then we are going to be having on June 30th at 6 o'clock. It's a Wednesday night. We are going to be having our book club meeting for, it's going to go right with ba- right with uh, Battle of Kennesaw, actually, kind of in line with that. We're going to be talking William Tecumseh Sherman, Through the Heart of Dixie by Dr. Ann Sarah Rubin. We are going to be discussing that book. And then we are going to be back on July the 3rd, back in Vicksburg again, to wrap up our discussion of the Vicksburg campaign. Then we are going to be back in Gettysburg for... The retreat from Gettysburg. So lots of fun stuff. We've also got our fundraiser with uh, Civil War Trails as well. So that's going to be that episode will have already dropped. So if you haven't listened to it yet, go listen to episode 43, which is our interview with Chris Brown from Civil War Trails. He was a great person to talk to. He's so fun to hang out with. And he's, you know, just like us when it comes to Civil War, just wants to have fun with it and tell the story and all that. And he likes beer too, which is awesome. Cut from the same cloth. So a lot of good stuff coming on the pike. So Mayor, great time as always, as always, the pleasure, as we all know, is always all yours. And we will head off to our next exciting adventure, which is our round table tomorrow in a trivia contest, as well as some other stuff that we have coming down the road. So any final words from you there, Fincheru? Thank you uh, to our listeners. Please support Civil War Trails by giving them a donation. Um, every $5 you guys donate, you'll get a, an entry into win an autograph book. But more than that, it's going to support some really you know awesome way to preserve history and tell the story of the Civil War. And to you, Darren, despite all the shit you give me, you are a really awesome co-host. Oh, very nice for you. And you do give me shit, by the way. You do. That's mm, true. Whatever. That's okay. You know, it sucks about yourself. Anyway. All right. So off we go into the wild blue yonder again. So again, um, we'll look forward to listening to this dropping next week. And we'll have a lot of fun and support. Don't forget our Charles Tilden Medal of Honor petition. Uh, make sure you do that. And, of course, we'll focus on the great Civil War trails to get them some money for some new signs. So – off we go. So, Mary, any final words from you as we head off? Nope. We're good to go. All right. Very quiet word. Quiet spoken today. So I already said go. it because you asked me before. That's true. Why did you, so you had something like something on your mind. No, so I, have to say I it don't. Again. All right. Well, it's not much on mind. Anyway, so, off we go. Anyway, so off we go. Guys, have a great time uh, the rest of the week. And we will talk to you, as they say, on the other side. And peace the hell out. See you guys later. Bye. 